Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Dana Stevens. Welcome to the Slate Culture Gab Fest. I think Jack Antonoff should leave edition. Today is Wednesday, July 7th, and today we're going to talk about the new concert documentary Summer of Soul, which is also the directorial debut of the DJ, performer, band leader Questlove. Next, we are going to take on the Netflix sketch comedy show I Think You Should Leave, which just dropped its second season. It's created by a lot of SNL alumni, but it has really nothing to do with that sensibility and is its own entirely bizarre thing, which we will discuss with guest Jesse David Fox, host of the comedy podcast Good One. And finally, if you have heard a power pop song by a young woman this summer, it was probably produced by Jack Antonoff, who seems to be the, holding the producing reins behind practically every young female singer of the moment. We're going to talk about why Jack Antonoff is having a moment, uh, what his sound is, if there is a Jack Antonoff sound, and what his presence in pop music means. Both Steve and Julia are out this week, but I have two really fun guests that I think are going to be great on these topics. One is Allegra Frank, senior editor at Slate. Hey, Allegra. Hi, thanks for having me back. Oh, yeah, you're fast becoming a, a major friend of the program and FOP. <laughs> and then, of course, we have Ancien Regime FOP, <laughs> Carl Wilson, music critic at Slate and uh, one of our favorite people to have on the show to talk about music, movies, and everything else. Hey, Carl. Hi, so great to be back. The Harlem Cultural Festival was a series of day-long concerts that took place in what is now Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem. They happened over the course of six different Sundays that summer and included essentially all the great voices in black music of that time. Soul, R&B, gospel, pop. You had Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Mahalia Jackson. I mean, we, I could spend the whole segment just talking about who sang at the Harlem Cultural Festival. But for over 50 years, this ephemeral experience, which was attended by something like 300,000 people over the course of that summer, has disappeared almost completely into obscurity, even though the entire thing was put on film by a director and producer named Hal Tolchin. No one was interested in the footage. Woodstock also happened that summer. It was getting all the attention. And Tolchin's attempt to pitch a documentary that he at the time was calling Black Woodstock Never Went Anywhere. But lo and behold, all of these years later, Amir Thompson, a.k.a. Questlove, the band leader and DJ, has put together as his very first directorial effort a documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival. It's called Summer of Soul. It has just opened on screens and also on Hulu. It, I think, should be the movie of the summer and everybody should flock to it. And I really can't wait to talk about why. But before we get into this conversation, let's listen to a clip from the movie. I hope we'll hear lots more clips of, of the great music in this movie. But here is one from one of the first acts we see in Summer of Soul. It's a very young and very natty Stevie Wonder shredding on the drums. Let's listen. The Harlem Cultural Festival was a total party atmosphere. Mount Mars Park, where the Panthers were the security and the kids were sitting up on the trees. Nineteen sixty. 
1969 was a change of era in the black community. The wholesale reevaluation of our history and our culture. The styles were changing. Music was changing. And revolution would come together. We need it now. The revolution is not going to stop. In 1969. Uh, courtesy of Hulu, but in in a different era, <laughs> in a different timeline, I absolutely would have watched this in a theater. And if people have that opportunity and are comfortable doing so, I would totally recommend it because this is just a, a totally fun movie that is so rhythmic and musical just in and of itself regardless of the fantastic music it's you know within it that is the centerpiece the movie itself i mean i think that clip we just heard really represents it of the editing the direction the cross-cutting between the musical performances and the really smart context to everything that that the that Questlove provides. It just makes this such a fun and smart and, you know, even educational watch because no, I, I knew, I knew nothing of the Harlem cultural festival. And I, I'm sure many other people would say the same because so much of this was lost to time. Right. Be because as you said, this footage just sat in a closet or a basement until now, which is really unfortunate. And I, I grew up with, you know, a dad and uh, both my parents are very into this kind of music and I've never heard them speak about it either. So it, it's something that I'm really glad is now being aired to a mainstream wide audience because not only is it just a really fantastic film, but clearly an important cultural document too. Even among sort of music heads, this story is kind of underknown. Um, and if you listen to Questlove talk about his motivation for doing it, one of the very first things that spurred him was being told by the people who had the rights to this, to this footage that this existed. And he was like, I barely knew that this happened. And if you know anything about Questlove's kind of personality as a music person, he's basically the guy who knows everything. He has kind of an eidetic memory and um, is an incredibly dedicated person to digging in the archives and all of that. So for even him not to have known much about had this having happened um, shows how much of a mind blower it is. Now, granted, a couple of years ago in 2019, um, there was a 50th anniversary concert event in New York to commemorate it. And a bunch of people wrote about it at the time. So that was kind of the beginning and the rumors of that this film was going to come happened then. But, um, but yeah, it, it's an extremely under noted um, event in history. And it was partly that overshadowing by Woodstock, but I think it's also that it doesn't fit neatly into the music documentary category. And it's a really creative um, effort to to kind of make it as neatly packaged as it is when you realize that this happened over the course of six weeks in a, in a summer 
also packed with events and and kind of cultural ferment. Um, even though we get a lot of those shots of the audience, there wasn't a roaming camera their way there, there was at Woodstock and at other festivals to really probe in. And so to really get that kind of personal touch and this poignance of like people who were little children at that event talking talking about it now, that stuff is really affecting in the way that the sociocultural context is woven in you know wesley morris in the new york times commented that you can really tell that this is a film made by a dj and a drummer and that that the editing is syncopated is the word that wesley used and it's really appropriate like I've, most of the time what happens in music documentaries is that you have music footage and then it stops kind of dead for talking heads or else there's, there's kind of like some background music woven in but there's there's it really that feeling of the two things competing is often a big problem with music docs. But what you get here is this kind of seamlessly um, woven together tapestry of the two that makes each of those things more and more meaningful as the film goes on. That That's the most powerful part of its achievement, along with some of the real musical highlights, I think. Yeah, the work that Questlove is doing, I mean, he's, he's credited as the director, obviously, but what he's really doing is, is a massive, massive work of editing, because, I mean, he's talked about this, he was working from 40 hours of total footage that had been filmed, and this movie is just about exactly two hours. So, you know, he obviously had a very big ratio to work with. I'm sure he left some incredible gems by the wayside for the sake of preserving that rhythm that you're talking about. And the talking head elements are incorporated so effortlessly and skillfully that it didn't feel to me as if there were any almost. I mean, after you finished watching the movie, you realized, oh yeah, we listened to, you know, we saw a lot of these performers watch themselves, you know, and, and sort of weep responding to their, their memories of this time. And it's all incorporated in such a way that you don't feel like you're being lectured at. You feel like you're at a musical performance. Maybe this is a good place to put in another clip. Was there a particular moment, Carl, that you, you'd like us to hear? And what, what do you think was the musical peak of the documentary? There, I mean, there are a few, but I think kind of undeniably the Mahalia Jackson Mavis Staples moment. I agree. We should definitely hear that clip. And I think that maybe the only setup that it would require is the background knowledge, if you don't have it already, that this was Martin Luther King's favorite hymn. And it was a song that he would sometimes call at Mahalia Jackson on the phone and have her <laughs> sing to him over the phone. That's a moment that's referenced in the movie Selma, I think. But it is it is something that actually used to happen when he needed inspiration. He would call her up and say, sing my precious Lord on the phone. And Martin Luther King, of course, had just been assassinated the previous year, just over a year before this. The anniversary had just passed. So everyone in the audience would have been acutely aware of that while listening to this performance. Yeah, the remarkable thing about that it's not only just the power of, of the performances itself in the context, you know, of doing Precious Lord Take My Hand um, as, in, as part of a tribute and, and kind of a storytelling moment about Martin Luther King, but also that there's this kind of generational thing going on in the whole gospel section of the film. You know, you know that this is music that's partly being presented to create this kind of cross-generational energy that, you know, you don't associate particularly with 60s concert 
films and 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 music festivals but that this is really about a neighborhood and it's really about Harlem and that gospel section make sure that you know that the aunties and the grandmas are being represented as well yeah, that may be one of the emotional peaks of the documentary, and it happens pretty early on. But there's a lot of different emotions. I mean, there's that emotion of gospel uplift, but, you know, there's still plenty of other emotions to come. Allegra, I wonder if there is a musical moment or a talking head moment that, that constituted one of the emotional peaks for you that you'd want to talk about and maybe play a clip from. So the part that really stood out to me was the discussion of the moon landing, which happened while the cultural festival was happening um, in July 1969. And they go between the festival itself and people on stage referencing that this just happened. And the news stories with predominantly white news anchors, you know, famously tearing up or speechless about this footage of seeing men on the moon, a man on the moon. And then on the ground interviews with various people in Harlem, both attendees at the festival and then also just locals, talking about how, well, who cares about the moon landing? Why are we putting a man on the moon for millions of dollars when there are people starving and dying, black people in Harlem and across the country, let alone the world? So, like, you know, like, never mind the moon, let's get some of that cash in Harlem. It's been a change, you might be the president of the United States with this. Listen, all you young people, listen, you're good. You young people. I think it's a waste of money. People are going hungry all over the United States. Let's do something about poverty now. Straightening out our problems. You hear Pop Staples and the Staples Singers performing It's Been a Change. And it's just, everything just sounds like music. I mean, when they're cutting all these interviews in, it still sounds like the music. So it's it's just really brilliant stuff. I mean, this, this this documentary is really impossible to summarize and I think has to be experienced, right? Like any live musical performance and it does feel very live when you're watching it. But I think we should maybe close out with at least one more musical moment to give people a taste. And Allegra, I know you had one that you wanted to, to talk about. Yeah, I I mean, of all the fantastic people in this, you know, in this film, it's just like a parade of some of the most famous and popular and important black artists. And it is honestly shocking to me that this was all free and like lasted a whole summer. But when Nina Simone comes out, I think at the toward the very end of the film, I was like, oh, my God, and she was here, too. Like, this is a freaking all star cast happening right now. And we were treated to several Nina Simone tracks, but Young, Gifted, and Black was just, I think, a really fantastic, I mean, it was a fantastic performance, but also just a powerful inclusion in the film, because this came after discussing how, you know, Harlem at the time did suffer from economic inequalities, and there was this drug problem, and also just in America itself, being a black person in 1969 was very, it was very difficult. It was incredibly difficult as it continues to be, but just a really harrowing time um, then as well, even coming out of the civil rights movement. But to have her leading this crowd of 40 or 50,000 people in performance of young, gifted and black was just so, so powerful. In the whole world, you know, 
know, just to add to what you were saying, like, I think, you know, it's such a stirring performance in and of itself. I think it was the moment I teared up the most during the, during the movie, but also it's really an example of a thing that happens a lot in the film, which is, you know, it, it was, there's a lot of energy and there's a change of style and there's a change of generation and there's a lot of talk about revolution in the film, but in a lot of ways, you know, behind that energy and color, there's a mournfulness to this film that I think just runs through it in an undercurrent and in some ways that this was a vision, you know, and appropriately to the suppression of the footage or the loss of the footage. It was a vision of a, of a new black America that in lots of ways, the seventies turned out to be a betrayal and a loss of, and you know, that what happened, what ended up happening in Harlem in the coming years as New York sort of fell through an economic hole and a lot of the city ended up burning in the next 10 years, you know, there's, there's that sense of, all the promise that's gathered together in this cultural festival and that is our energies that we're still trying to like gather together and make real again today. And I think, you know, that's, you know, Nina Simone in her own inimitable way, that, that mixture of power and sadness that she always had in her voice and in her style. It's, it's very much, you know, the a kind of shadow, truth about the whole film and the history that we're seeing that I think part is part of what gives that performance its cumulative power seeing it again now. All right. Well, the movie is Summer of Soul. It's streaming on Hulu. It's also playing in theaters around the country and we can't recommend it strongly enough. So please go see Summer of Soul. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now is the time in our show when we take a moment to talk about business, and we have two items of business this week. The first one is to continue to implore you, listeners, to send suggestions for our Summer Strut playlist. This is the crowdsourced playlist that we create every year so that we can talk on a future show about the song of the summer, songs of past summers, and generally music that makes you happy to walk through the hot streets listening to in your earbuds. We've already gotten some really good selections. We're compiling them to a Spotify playlist. We're going to start listening to it very soon and thinking about when to do our show, which will be a little bit later in the summer than usual this year because we're waiting for Julia Turner, who was the inventor of Summer Strut and one of its greatest enthusiasts, to be ready to come back from maternity leave at least long enough to talk music with us. So if you haven't sent a song and you have some inspirational ideas for music that makes you feel good on warm summer days, send it to culturefest at slate.com and we'll put it on the playlist. Again, that's culturefest at slate.com for Summer Strut. The only other item of business is that in today's Slate Plus segment, we are going to be talking about live music. Since we have Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, with us today, we're going to have a conversation about what live music means to us. What's the first concert we want to hear after the pandemic is over or now that it is beginning to be something like over? And maybe what's the last one we went to before the pandemic began? I think all three of us this week have very different relationships to live music. One as a music critic, one as a pop connoisseur like Allegra is, and one as somebody who really discovers pop music only through this show, <laughs> like me. So we'll have a conversation about all those different relationships to going to live concert venues in our Slate Plus segment. 
And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up to be one at slate.com slash culture plus. It only costs a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the segment I just described, and members-only programming on other Slate podcasts like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And of course, you will also get unlimited access to all the writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Once again, to join up, you go to slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show. In 2019, a new comedy sketch show premiered on Netflix. It was created by and stars the former Saturday Night Live writer Tim Robinson with his co-writer Zach Cannon, also an SNL veteran. It's also produced by a trio of former Saturday Night Live comedians. But in spite of its Saturday Night Live credentials, I think you should leave as its own very odd, uh, idiosyncratic, arrhythmic, completely different kind of comedy show. It just dropped its second season on Netflix, and here to talk about it with us today is Jesse David Fox. He is a senior editor at Vulture and the host of A Good One, a podcast about jokes. He's been a guest on our show before. We love to have him here to talk about comedy or whatever else he pleases. Hey, Jesse, good to have you. Thank you so much for having me to talk about this show. I'm very, very excited. Before we get into our conversation with Jesse, let's hear a clip from the new season of I Think You Should Leave. I think this is pretty self-explanatory in that it is just as random and bizarre as everything else that happens on the show. So let's roll. Come, what the fuck? Come on, man, go! What is your problem, man? Do you know how to fucking drive? No. What? No, I don't know how to fucking drive. I don't know what any of this shit is, and I'm fucking scared. What are you talking about, you psycho? You don't know how to drive? Not everybody knows how to do everything. Driving isn't the only thing. Just move your car! Okay. I don't know how I can. Oh, my God. Just grab the steering wheel. Fine! Ow! It hurt? Yeah, it does. It does hurt, actually. What if you get to where you're going and it's a job interview and I turn out to be the boss? I'm not going to a job interview! You could be a year from now. Oh my God. Everybody says, oh, that guy seems great. I'm saying, hold on, oh, wait a minute. That guy yells. Move your fucking car! I can't! Why not? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. What? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, you don't want to help me. You just want to yell. Fuck. That's just the horn. I don't know that, do I? Jesse, I'll start with you. I don't even know how to frame this. I know that you have been a big advocate of this show on your Twitter and in your writing and in your podcasting since it premiered in 2019. If listeners like me knew of this show prior to this segment, mainly through its intense memeability and um, pictures of a guy in a hot dog costume that circulated on social media for a long time, Tell people why they should be watching I Think You Should Leave on Netflix and what it brings to the comedy sketch world that it's been needing. Sure, yeah. I mean, it is the pinnacle of, I guess, like modern stupid comedy. Stupid not meaning... it's hard, You know, stupid is such a complicated word in comedy because, like, it is smartly done, but it is, like, it revels in a sort of stupid space. There's It's very low-brow, but not bad just sort of like there's a lot of poop jokes and cursing and yelling and it is just sort of he just there tim robinson who you heard in that sketch and his co-creator zach cannon and uh their co-writer john solomon who you also heard in that sketch they just have an ear for just sort of like a laugh that is like deep inside of you that is like was like the type of laughing that you did as a kid like that type of stupid humor and i think it is there's like no one that's operating at that level of that type of comedy. And it's such a relief because comedy has been so serious 
especially over the last few years. Allegra, what about you? What is your history with this show, um, and how is the second season striking you um, in, in comparison with the first? Did you feel like this show needed a second season and that it's doing anything different with it? I absolutely am in love with this show. I mean, it feels like so long since the first season premiered, but I've been, you know, eagerly anticipating another season of it. Like, it's the kind of thing where I could watch 50 episodes, you know, like, I love sketch comedy, but especially like absurdist sketch comedy. And a bunch of the people who are on this show are like some of my favorite people. Um Tim Robinson, you know, he originally had been on SNL for a season. That didn't quite work out. And I just like watching this show, imagine a version of SNL or like somehow a a mainstream, widely known comedy series that has this very strange, loud, angry, but hilarious, unpredictable sense of humor. Because that is completely, you know, in line with my own. So I watched it like day one back in 2019 now, I guess. And yeah, I've been I've been so excited for a second season ever since. So I'm, I'm very excited and glad that it's back now after such a long wait. I want you guys to help me describe to our listeners that what sets the show apart from sketch shows that I'm used to or just, you know, sketch style that I'm used to. Like you said, the two creators of the show, Zach Cannon and Tim Robinson, come from writing for SNL and in Robinson's case for performing. And it's also produced, the show is produced by the Lonely Island trio, right, of Andy Samberg, Dorma Tacone, and Akiva Schaefer. Um, but although it has a lot of SNL in its genes, this show feels very, very different. And to me, what kept striking me as I was watching my way through both seasons uh, is the shape of the sketches. I mean, because they're not performed live, right, they don't have to sort of announce their intention as early on. They can unfold, like you say, Allegra, in very unexpected ways. And it seemed to me that you could almost... I started to think that you could almost diagram and graph the shape of a typical sketch from this show in that, you know, it sort of starts in one place that is usually a a very ordinary scene from daily life and then spirals into some tiny detail of that scene, right? So that the graph would almost sort of look like, oh, here's a line, you know, slowly ascending on a graph and then suddenly it sort of falls into like a swirl of spirals or something like that, if that makes sense. I mean, this show is just all about exploring little moments um, where the humor comes from and yeah. those moments become loopier and loopier as the scene goes on. It, it, what's interesting about the show, you know, like it is both so cl- like it's so clearly rooted in sort of an SNL structure of one weird person enters a normal world and then increasingly gets weirder as the people around them are trying to be like, why are you being so weird? Stop being so weird. Right. Like that's that's like pretty classic SNL structure. It heightens three times the, the way they shoot the show because it's not live and because they have time is so different in that they write really, really long scripts that are like 20 minutes long and they shoot tons of stuff. And then they essentially then re-edit it back to what is somewhat like an SNL pacing, at least in the first season when the the sketches were shorter. So it has that, but because they're shooting so much, the beats feel not normal. I think that also allows them to sort of like take an SNL form and hybrid with more of like a Tim and Eric thing where like at any moment can go sideways, which allows you not to feel like the sketches are as predictable. That said, season two has a lot more tonal variation and like structural um, variation in that like sketches will like, it starts in one place with a classic 
I think should leave minor grievance of like this guy makes a joke about his wife, right? And and you think it's just going to be that thing where he like apologizes over and over again to his wife, but instead he just has a fantasy of auditioning for a play, getting the role, and then how his wife was really supportive as he has this rivalry with another actor named Jimmy Taco, I believe his name is, and that is a completely different thing. Or there's a sketch um, if I, that stars Michael Bryan who also was on SNL with Tim, who uh, is credited as a writer on this episode, so it might have been Tim uh, his idea, which is... This is such a the crazy this is the premise of a sketch, but essentially Michael Bryan has two little drops of pee on his pants and a coworker calls him out for it. And Tim Robinson enters and goes like, no, that's actually what the pants are styled to be like. Right. And then he's like, go to this website. Go to CalcoCutPants.com. Calico Cut. CalcoCutPants.com right now. It's not that big a deal. If you don't believe me, go ahead. Look it up right now. Okay, fine. CalicoCutPants.com Oh yeah, here it is. They sell pants with little dots on them. That's got nothing to do with piss. Oh, okay. Sorry. And then the sketch is like an eight minute long exploration of like their relationship that like plays out like a weird psychodrama and that's a completely different style than one like what we think of when we think of an I think you should leave sketch all right I'm glad we we played that clip because that gives an idea of the the loopy graph structure I was talking about <laughs> because subsequent to that opening this sketch, which goes on quite a while, as you said, Jesse, becomes about something entirely different, which is the Tim Robinson character trying to raise money to keep the Calico Cut Pants website going so that people who find themselves in that situation will continue to have a place to lie about their pants. And it becomes almost like a fundraising telethon for yeah. the pants site. And it's just, it's, you, you just have to admire the sheer lunacy of how, how long they pursue that joke. Yeah, and it's also talks, it speaks to like, clearly the show had more budget so like the sketches are longer they're the it looks so much better like you, if you go back and look at season one now you're like oh man they must have like had to knock this thing out in like a couple weeks this is like just in terms of like camera setups and the ability to do a sketch this long with like different parts in the office um it just like it's it's i don't know if i'd say the season's better or worse but it's definitely just it's it's richer and and i guess deeper and i think a little bit more complicated while also and this is what curious to hear you guys opinion about it's like it's still like very dirty and very much about peeing and pooping and i find it so interesting like i'm open to that type of comedy no matter what like i'm a big adam sandler person but it is interesting that so many smart people are like oh i love this sketch show where all they talk about is like different types of poop and such (laughs) yeah it is really funny because i'm the same way of like people can say pee pee poo poo and i'll be (laughs) laughing for the next 20 minutes and this has happened many times. But I know so many different kinds of people who generally are not fans of that kind of comedy who also love the show. I mean, I think the fact that there are these sort of memeable moments, we mentioned the hot dog guy earlier, <laughs> like there are these a little bit more accessible moments within mm. the the dirty toilet humor or i'm thinking of in the first season like baby of the year yeah like interspersed within each episode or even within each sketch there is sort of that nugget that translates very well to twitter Mm -hmm. in a broader sense um so it is really funny though to see that sort of dichotomy of like this is filthy very strange 
toilet humor where a lot of the jokes are about poop and pee and vomit and whatnot. But there is always something a little bit easier to share with the normies mm-hmm. among us within. Jesse, there's one thing I wish that this show would do more of, and I think maybe it may be reaching toward doing it more in season two, but I think this show would, might benefit from having a little bit more of a, a knit-together approach in the way that, mm-hmm. say, Second City used to do, where it sort of creates a universe where these sketches relate to each other occasionally. There's, there's a moment when it does that in the first episode of the second season that I think is great, which, without getting too into the details, there's a shirt store that the Tim Robinson character is obsessed with in one sketch. He spends thousands of dollars on shirts from this store because he thinks that the patterns are so complex and that's why the shirts are more expensive because there's like more overlapping designs on the pattern. They have this one shirt that costs $1,000 because the pattern's so wild. I want that one so bad. Mike, we have to focus. I'm just not going to let Doug say that about Dan Flashes that the patterns aren't complicated. I never said that. You said they shouldn't jack up the prices. That means that the patterns aren't complicated, and they are, even on this one, which is bargain bin. Okay, okay. That's just sort of a throwaway thing that happens early in the episode. But then the episode ends with this this moment of, you know, these all of these men wildly raiding this store mm-hmm. at the mall and picking up pattern shirts and sort of going mad on the intensity of the patterns. I kind of wish that there was a little bit more of that so that we started to have a sense that the I think you should leave universe sort of radiated out in concentric circles. Do you Do you see them doing more of that, or would you like them to? I, I mean, I, I definitely see them. I, I see this season as like a classic uh, second album move, which is like your first album. It's like all the songs you had and it's like they, there's an urgency and it's like punk rock. And then the second one, you like are a little bit better in your instruments and you expand a little bit, but it's still the same type of show. And I imagine especially like you can see that they're a little bit tired of just putting Tim in every sketch just because Tim, though, has a, a variety of moves is ultimately going to be a Tim type character. So you're seeing just different people. And as I said, there's the tonal variation. And the tone is what always has connected it. And I think as they expand the tone, they're going to need... It, it will be nice to ground it in some sort of way. Where I think what was fun about the first season is like everything is... You want nothing connected because the whole thing is about how absurd and how like random things are. Right? So if you had if everything was connected, then it wouldn't feel as random. But now I think it'd benefit from a little bit more and not benefit, but it'd be interesting to see. I don't want to say it's better or worse. It just sort of would be interesting to see what it would look like for them to do kind of like what happened with Portlandia as Portlandia went on. Each episode kind of only focused on the same characters opposed to what it was when it started. Well, if nothing else, and this is something that we haven't mentioned thus far, the the episodes are only about 16 to 17 minutes <laughs> yeah. long. So if you're curious about what we've been talking about and you don't want to invest a huge amount of time, in half an hour, you can cram in two episodes of I Think You, you Should Leave. My prediction is you'll want to stick with it. Jesse David Fox, thank you very much for coming on to talk about this show. Please join us again sometime soon. Oh, whenever you want, I'm around. <laughs> thank you so much. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. 
A new track from the upcoming album from the New Zealand singer-songwriter Lord came out last month. The album will be called Solar Power, and like Lord's last album, and like recent records by Taylor Swift, Lana Del Rey, The Chicks, St. Vincent, and others, it was produced by Jack Antonoff, who's been a big, if mainly behind-the-scenes, presence in pop music for the past decade or so. He's the frontman for the band Bleachers. He's also a former member of the band Fun, but he's primarily known as the producing force behind a lot of female power pop singers. Before we get into Jack Antonoff, let's hear a little bit of that Lord track, Solar Power. My cheeks in hot color, overripe peaches No shirt, no shoes, only my features My boy behind me, he's taking pictures Meet the boys and girls onto the beaches Come on, come on, tell you my secrets I'm kinda like a prettier Jesus Forget all of the tears that you've cried It's over I should say that Carl Wilson's Lace Music Critic is back with us again for this segment on Jack Antonoff, but I'm actually going to start with you, Allegra. We are doing this as a segment in part because you requested it because you have strong feelings about Jack Antonoff. As you can see in the editorializing of the title of this week's show, the I Think Jack Antonoff Should Leave (laughs) edition. I'm not sure Carl (laughs) agrees with you on that, and maybe you guys will find it out, but I want to hear why you think Jack Antonoff should leave. Why do you think he's too omnipresent in pop music right now? I I don't begrudge people for wanting to work with him because obviously he's found extreme success, you know, ever since helping out on 1989 and seeing that win album of the year with Taylor. But he's gone from being, you know, a, a, a talented pop songwriter to being like a force where he explicitly specifically works with a group of popular white girls who are singing a lot about boys and breakups and whatnot, which is one of my favorite kinds of topics. But I continue to find it both frustrating that Jack Antonoff is sort of like the keeper of this specific genre, the the very mainstream version of it, and that he is, uh, yeah, a white male working almost exclusively with white women as the the sole interpreter of these feelings. And I don't want to blame him because I know the music industry is incredibly male, especially when it comes to producers and very successful or expensive big name songwriters. And of course, he just slots into that. And, you know, when you're Taylor Swift, you're going to work with someone who's a big deal. You're not going to work with some unknown, although I wish she would. Um, But... I'm just I'm quite bored by and tired of Jack Antonoff being that go to, because not only do I just find it frustrating as like, you know, why can't Taylor or Lord work with another woman who I think might be a, a better choice to relate to these sorts of ideas in a more comfortable way to me as a female listener around their age, um, around Lord's age. But also, it, it's starting to all sound very samey in a sort of bland way. Like I loved 1989 and then Jack Antonoff was the one working primarily on reputation with Taylor, which I think was not a good album for the most part and sounded like 1989, but much more boring and 
uh, sanded down and was bad. And then I think Lord, in her first album before she hooked up with Jack, it's like I thought her first album was fantastic and unique and everything sounded so vibrant and different from each other. And I know a lot of people love Melodrama, the album where she really worked with him. Um, and I, I just find it to be uninteresting. Like I find these things to sound very similar. It's all like slightly synthy, um, very pop, a little bit out of the left field with some, you know, interesting sounds, whatnot, uh, some more unique sounds, but I, I just don't find it interesting. I find it like it's becoming more of a Jack Antonoff sound than like a Lord sound or a Taylor sound. I could right, just go Carl, on. <laughs> Carl, I know you're going to have things to counter, but in, in your, your response to Allegra, I want you to cover one thing, which, which is what, how precisely would you define the Jack Antonoff sound? Because now, as somebody who is coming to him, knowing him mainly as the guy who used to date Lena Dunham and be in profiles <laughs> about her, mm-hmm. and sang that one hit song with Janelle Monet, I had no real sense of who he was except as a personality. I've now read all these profiles of him and tried to get my head around who he is as a producer, and I still don't know what his sound is supposed to be. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this conversation. But yeah, to, <laughs> to, to address the question of the Jack Antonoff sound, I there are people who would say that there is one. I think it is, it's an important thing to his ubiquity in the last five years or so that there really isn't. There are things that stereotypically are associated with him, kind of an 80s synth sound and sets of patches that way. The acoustic guitar is kind of weaving into that. Um, often kind of warm strings on slower songs. Uh, His kind of approach to building a chorus um, to kind of get to an epic kind of feel and an emotional climax. There are all of those things, but I think the reason that all these people work with him is that the real Jack Antonoff sound is the sound of of an excellent collaborator. And if you really look at the track lists of things that he's worked on with people, you know, it ranges from like totally beat-oriented things and new wavy-sounding things to, you know, much colder kind of robotic-oriented things to balladry and sometimes to sort of strip down entirely acoustic ballads. There really isn't, you know, aside from some sort of trivial markers, I don't think there really is a Jack Antonoff sound. And I think that um, much more than ascribing to him this kind of poisonous, blandifying (laughs) influence on these artists, I think we have to ask what these artists wanted out of him. And by all accounts, it is this kind of fluidity of collaboration, his ability to um, help encourage them to take ideas further um, and to to pursue the vision that they want to pursue. the deeper question, you know, we need to point to how often these kinds of collaborative relationships have been building up recently. You know, with Olivia Rodrigo, you have um, this guy, Dan Negro, who's similarly also a, a former, like, kind of power pop band guy who um, she found and and turned into her primary collaborator after working with other people. You could look at Billie Eilish working with her brother Phineas. It's that same kind of dyad. Lord, before she started working with Jack Antonoff, worked with this producer, Joel Little, who she had a very similar kind of symbiotic relationship with. And there's two central questions, I think. One is, um, what benefit is there to these young women to have 
somebody that they work with that intimately and continually to kind of create a, a safe atmosphere in which they can they can pursue things self-expressively. And I think, you know, you can contrast somebody like Antonov and the way that he seems to be in studios with the legacy of people like Phil Spector or, God forbid, Dr. Luke, who, you know, this kind of legacy of exploitive producers over the years who used female artists as kind of, you know, artists they were going to manipulate to fulfill their ideas. And Jack Antonoff seems to come at it a different way. And so do these other producers. But the but there is this fundamental question that Allegra kind of hinted around early on, which is the enormous problem that there are so few women producers in, in the music industry. You know, studies have said that in charting music, the number is something like 2% of songs that get on on the billboard charts that have women producers involved and you know this has been a conversation that particularly about five years ago bjork brought up in a in a pitchfork interview where she talked about never being recognized as a producer herself people like grimes have talked about it it's a it's an enormous problem that there's this barrier between women artists and access to sort of the means of production, literally in, in the studio and the sort of boys clubness of that. I think that these kind of empathetic producers, I would look at more as bridging figures who are helping advocate for women artists on this level. We can go all the way back to Joni Mitchell who refused to have a, a producer explicitly and made herself the producer, but worked with uh, an engineer named Henry Louis for years and years and years as her kind of main sort of studio um, medium. And, and I think that women often need that kind of presence and that kind of ally in the, in the male dominated world of recording studios. And I think that's what's going on with Jack. And I, I find it hard to find that pernicious. Yeah. I think you put it so much more eloquently than I could, even though we do have different, different views. But yes, it's the, it's not that Jack himself is, as you said, pernicious. And again, I don't want to fault him because I do love a lot of the music he's worked on, even going back to fun. The first fun album is great. Great <laughs> album. Second album, horrible, but that's okay. Um, I, I just... As again, as someone who is a woman, there is just something that it frustrates me, and I find this too with Phoebe Bridgers and Connor Oberst. Why do we have to rely on men to help us extract our music and get our music, and especially quite emotional music, in the cases of all of these women? All four examples here. It's frustrating that we have to turn to men here to be our closest collaborators. And, you know, it's not to say that men cannot work with women and do a great job. And I think all four of those women's music is very honest and true to who they are. But it's just the the optics of it that I find so incredibly frustrating. And also the fact that, like, Jack has not... Uh, he worked with Kevin Abstract, which is one mm -hmm. of the only men he's ever worked with, and a black man, and very different from the rest of his oeuvre here. But also the lack of diversity in his collaborators really frustrates me, too. It's like, you know, it is like we, he only works with this kind of beautiful white woman, blonde or brown hair, who a lot of them are friends. I, I, it's just it's boring. And it's not that he is bl making the music bland, but to me is making that genre bland. And all of these people could be 
so much more they just could have they have so much power here that they could be lifting up other women of different uh different identities and backgrounds in really interesting powerful ways and i just don't think they're doing enough there dana i wonder if listening to this conversation you think about similar dynamics in film and the ways that the ways that these divisions of labor happen there yeah, well, when you said gave that two percent figure for the amount of you know charting music that is produced by women, I, my first thought was, wow, that's even worse than film, <laughs> right? I mean, that's even a lower percentage than what we have. Of, I mean, I guess the the the, the equivalent would be directing, right? We think of that as sort of the auteur of a movie, um, and I'm sure that we have at this point more than two percent of of major films being directed by women. Although for many many years, it probably was close to to something like that number. Maybe because producing music is more behind the scenes, right? I mean, you're more likely to to get into a band without necessarily knowing who was on the production team. Um, it's it's more of an invisible problem, and it takes connoisseurs to know about it, right? I mean, with a movie, the name is is right up there, up top. And I do feel like as bad as the situation is for women in film right now, at least we know it's bad, right? At least there's sort of, um, you know, studies and graphs that come out every year to show whether the situation's improving. And, you know, obviously a woman just won Best Director at the Oscars. And it's something that's starting to be on people's radar in the mainstream. And I don't think that that is necessarily the case in production. But that could just be the, the, the fact that I'm more tuned out of pop music than most people. I mean, I think producers in music are more top of billing than they ever have been before. And that's, you know, part of why Jack is like a noticeable enough presence for, for Allegra to get irritated by <laughs> being everywhere. But yeah, I mean, the, the dilemma of how the music industry is going to recognize, especially now that there's so much more home recording equipment and that's sophisticated, you know, somebody like Claro, who's Work, working with Jack on her new album has been like a bedroom pop auteur who's really had control of the knobs and switches herself for most of her career and now trying to expand to do something sort of wider screen pop notable has turned to somebody like Jack to do it. And like there has to be a, bil- a bridge built between those people who know how to work with, you know, Ableton and Autotune and all of the all of the things in their bedrooms to coming into a studio and graduating to that next level. And, and it, it's really happening at nowhere near at the pace that it should be. It seems like from what you all are saying that one thing that he and other male producers in this scenario should be doing is opening up internships, right, for, <laughs> for women, trying mm-hmm. to encourage women producers that they should be using their platform more to say like, hey, let's bring in people from different backgrounds to do the job that we've been hogging for all these years. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm curious what listeners think of this conversation, whose side they take in this argument, if any at all, or if, like me, they're sort of neutral on the fence trying to figure it out. If you have a Jack Antonoff opinion or a song he produced that you love, that you hate, that you want to make an argument for or against, please write us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
got your happy price, price line. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, we've done it. It was such a fun conversation that it zoomed by, but we've reached the part of the podcast where we endorse. Uh, I guess I will start with you, Carl. What have you experienced in the past week that you think the rest of the world should experience? Um. This is going to be a slightly extended endorsement just because I want to talk about the work of Lauren Berlant. Um, it's a University of Chicago-based cultural scholar and critic who sadly died last week of cancer at the age of just 63. It's kind of tricky to know where to point listeners because Berlant was an academic writing mostly for other academics and their work can be a little dense to grapple with. I've absorbed a lot from their excerpts and interviews. Dana, you posted a good one on Twitter after the news of their death. But I was influenced by Berlant's thinking, and so were countless others that they mentored and taught and worked with. Berlant was a leading figure of what's called affect theory, which I'll summarize no doubt poorly as trying to treat public and private emotional expressions and overtones as meaningful cultural and political occasions for analysis. There, two big books were The Female Complaint about the legacy and influence of sentimentality in American life and cruel optimism, which is basically about the mirage of the American dream and how the so-called pursuit of happiness can itself become one of the main factors preventing people from accessing their deepest desires. But for a more bite-sized glimpse, I'll suggest an August 2016 post from their blog, which is called Trump or Political Emotions. It was written after both the Republican and Democratic political conventions that year as a protest against the common complaint that what was wrong with Trump was that he was making politics dangerously emotional. And Berlant wanted to say that politics is always emotional and each side just wants to see themselves as rational. Um, so in a very brief passage, um, for many Democrats, Berlant wrote, quote, the equal distribution of suffering has come to look like democracy, which is why they are so excited by the phrase, the 1%. The rich are not suffering. It's not fair. Everyone should be equally vulnerable. But Trump's people don't use suffering as a metric of virtue. They want fairness of a sort, but mainly they seek freedom from shame. Civil rights and feminism aren't just about the law, after all. They are about manners and emotions, too. And these, quote, unquote, interest groups get right in there and reject what feels like people's spontaneous, ingrained responses. The Trump emotion machine is delivering feeling okay, acting free, being okay with one's internal noise and saying it and demanding that it matter. In the political, emotional, contemporary world, internal noise matters. Quoting it from that way, risks reducing all the ins and outs that follow and make this short piece really feel still illuminating five years later, but we'll put a link up on the show page. And in any case, RIP, Lauren Berlant, you will be missed. That was a beautiful endorsement. Thank you. Allegra, what have you got? Okay, I'm going to do a hard pivot into something that's not very beautiful or meaningful to most people. Um, but I have been a big fan of a video game that was recently released on consoles. It was, it was originally a free download on PC and Mac, but now they have released an expanded version for the Switch, the PS4, and the Xbox. And it is called Doki Doki Literature, <laughs> Literature Club Plus, which... 
I know is a pretty inane title to probably most listeners, um, but it's actually an incredibly interesting game that I have become obsessed with. It's what is called a visual novel. So it's um, that genre is predominantly based on reading and making some dialogue choices, but uh, not, you know, there's no uh, shooting or even walking around. It's mostly about the, the story. And this story ostensibly is a cutesy uh, reference to many other visual novels and anime and other uh, Japanese store, Japanese uh, manga and anime stories about cute schoolgirls and the boy they all have a crush on. So it's uh, the player character is a boy who joins at his friend's behest a literature club at the high school where they just read and they write poems to each other. But it soon turns, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but the game originally came out in 2017, so most people know this at this point. But very soon after it begins, it turns actually into a very disturbing horror game. So it's it's subverting the genre of, oh, you're just a boy with crushes on cute girls. And it ends up being very meta. It takes on both the visual novel genre, but also video games as a medium where uh, the characters become sort of sentient and you have to go in and actually delete files from the game in order to continue playing. The game will glitch out and crash um, throughout. So it's very unexpected and odd and that's what makes it really fun. The part with the cutesy schoolgirls where they're on their knees and you're supposed to button their blazer, but it's too small because they're, <laughs> as they say, their boobs have gotten bigger recently. That's uh, that's one thing. But what the real appeal is, <laughs> once you get past that, the real appeal is that suddenly these girls are going through this horrible trauma that is completely created by the game itself and you have to go into the the meat of the game as a digital uh digital product in order to progress so it's it's really interesting it's it's funny it's self-aware and it's a pretty quick play i but there's multiple endings multiple ways to go through it so i've been having a lot of fun with Doki Doki Literature Club Plus, specifically on the Nintendo Switch, I've been playing it. Wow, I love how completely uh, <laughs> divergent those two endorsements are. It's great. Yeah. We've got it all here on the Slate Culture Gap Fest. <laughs> all right, my endorsement is um, this is a, a very me kind of thing. I love sites on the internet that allow you to see what's happening in real time in different places. I mean, I guess Google Maps would be a version of this. Not that I spend a lot of time uh, killing time on Google Maps, but explore.org, which I've talked about before on the show, which is live cams on animals and nature all over the world, is a place that I love to visit and just sort of have in a tab in the background so I can go see what's happening in, you know, Nome, Alaska on the Brown Bear Reserve <laughs> or whatever. So I've found another thing that's similar to that, but in the world of radio. Carl, you're a music guy. Have you heard of Radio Garden, the website? Oh, before? yeah. Yeah. Have this you gets ever passed have you around. played around with it? Yeah, this gets passed around music critic Twitter and music critic social media in general, like every six months or so, and there's another wave of people discovering it. It's 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 amazing. 
It is amazing. All right, I'm sorry to be another latecomer, boring person discovering Radio Garden, <laughs> no, no, but no. I hope some more boring people will join me because it's really, really cool. So Radio Garden is basically just an interactive map of the globe. It's very simple. It's not, you know, fancy interactive with a lot of switches. It's almost like one of those globes that you'll sometimes see on your individual screen on a plane, you know, where you can track the progress of the plane. And on some of the better ones, you can rotate the globe around and, and learn about different places, right? I always love doing that too. And that's what this site is. It's a big rotating globe and you can put your cursor anywhere, like putting a pin in a map and hear whatever's going on uh, on the radio in that part of the world. So, you know, for example, right now, before our conversation, I went to Morocco to see what people are listening to on the radio, and I now have, it's muted so I can talk to you all, but I have Skyrock Casablanca playing somewhere in the background. And uh, a really fun thing about exploring world radio is you get to hear DJs, right? I mean, I just feel like DJs, special DJs who really loved the form of music they were talking about, knew a lot about it, and knew how to frame it and present it, are really disappearing from the world as we listen to more and more Spotify and digital streaming platforms, and we're not listening to music that a person is curating and presenting for us. So this is one way to do that. And it's also, of course, a really just a cool way to explore the world. It's not at all always the case that you're hearing music of that part of the world, right? So it's very possible that if I turn up Skyrock Casablanca right now, they're listening to to, you know, Chicago or something. But um, but just knowing that some guy in Casablanca right now felt like spinning a Chicago platter is in itself very fun. So it does have some of that adventure exploration feeling of explore.org. And it's got that real time thing as well. So if there's breaking news, you might hear that breaking news broken in some completely other land that you've never been to before. So all you do is go to radio.garden and, um, and start playing around with it. And I predict people will be really into it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Carl and Allegra. This was an extra fun show and a really lively conversation. Thank you, Dana. Thanks. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can also always write us an email at culturefest at slate.com, whether you have feedback on the show that we've just done, ideas for a future show, and especially suggestions for a Slate Plus segment. In fact, we're doing one of those from a listener today, and we always love to get them. So again, that's culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music was composed by the wonderful Nick Brittell. Our producer is Cameron Drews, and our production assistant this week was Cleo Levin. For Allegra Frank and Carl Wilson, I'm Dana Stevens. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.